Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. How you doing, Ben? I'm doing alright. It's, um... The first snowfall of the season. Yes, the weather outside is frightful. Oh, ho, 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 ho. We've had our one week of fall that we are allotted per year, and now it is winter. <laughs> Correct, yes. It was a very nice fall, though. Lots yeah. of changing colors and pumpkin spice lattes. It was beautiful for the whole seven days that it lasted. Yeah. Well, last week was busy, with Picture of Dorian Gray, mm-hmm. two hours of an episode. Yes. Yeah, do you think this week's movie is going to be just as big? Mm, I will... I will be shocked if that is the case. What are we watching? This week we are watching The Vampire's Ghost from 1945. And uh, yeah, I think I think this will be maybe a more languidly paced episode. We've got time to fill, maybe. I feel like someone was just, you know, spinning two wheels mm-hmm. when it came up upon Vampire's Ghost. Which is probably not as, like, extreme as we could have gotten, like, Vampire Zombie or Mummy's Werewolf. Sure. Um, yeah, it definitely reminds me of the Mummy's Ghost in terms of, like, random titles that don't make sense. I still think we need to make that, um, like, scream scene horror title generator based on, like, y- the day you were born thing. We'll make that a uh, a Patreon goal. Okay. You know, if we hit this certain amount per month, we'll uh, we'll make that. Speaking of Patreon goals, uh, we are into October. Yeah. And we've got some official spooky times. Right. We've got some special Patreon stuff going on all through October, just like we did last year, only different. So um, these are going to be available to patrons of all levels, and. Well, Sarah, why don't you talk about what you're doing first? Sure. So I, as always, bit off more than I could chew. Mm-hmm. And Last year you did an EP of original music. Yeah, which was one song a week, and then one on Halloween. This year I thought about trying to like challenge my audio editing self a little bit differently. So I have made an audiobook... <laughs> Of Carmilla by Sheridan Lafanu. It's in the public domain. Yes, but also it's like one of the earliest vampire novels. Mm-hmm. Novellas? It's like a novella, I think, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, Predates Dracula, though. Definitely. I had never read it before, so doing this audiobook allowed me to A, read it, and B, um, sharpen my narration skills. Mm. Uh, my hope is to add in some, like, atmospheric uh, sound effects and music when it's um, not, like, throughout the entire thing, because I feel like that's probably too much work. Um, I'm just looking for, like, a little bit too much work. Mm -hmm. Uh, So just, like, during key moments, there'll be, like, a leitmotif here or there. So that is what I'm releasing. Um, I've split the audiobook into five parts, so... One part will be released each week, and then the final part, the conclusion, as it were, will be released on Halloween. Right. 
So what are you doing, Ben? Well, Sarah, uh, I am doing like a little bit of an extra bonus episode. I don't know what you would really call it, but um, it's going to be audio. It'll go up on our Patreon and it's an episode of a Scream Scene spinoff, like <laughs> like Solo, a Star Wars story. Uh, this is like a Scream Scene story. It's just a, a spinoff about Vera West, mm. who was the uh, head of the costume department at Universal Pictures. So if you watch the Universal Monster movies, you know, you will see gowns by Vera West in the credits for every single one of them. And if you think about the gowns in those movies, you're going to think of like a white slinky, like, silk dress, right? Yeah, something very flowy. Yeah. Um, to kind of float behind her as she runs through the swamps. Flowy and yet, like, clingy at the same time. Clingy in all the right places. Exactly. Um, and Vera West's Unless life... Unless the green office is asking, in which case, no, it's just baggy. Right. Vera West's life is very interesting, hmm. um, not the least of which because of how it ended. And her <laughs> her um, death is a ongoing, unsolved Hollywood mystery. Oh. So that's sort of your teaser. Um, uh, so we can call this um, spinoff Scream Scene Unsolved. Right. Scream Scene Serial. Um, <laughs> so our special Patreon content through October is going to be coming out on Fridays. Um, additionally... Uh, there will still be our regular Patreon content, bonus audio from past episodes on Mondays, as well as uh, some writing that's going to be coming out. I'm going to be continuing the serial story that I started in the summer, and uh, there might even be some writing uh, from Sarah for our $10 patrons. Uh, so lots of stuff to look forward to. Check that out on patreon.com slash Podcast. You can sign up for as little as a dollar a month, get thanked on the show, and you will get access to all of the special October content. And then if you want the regular Patreon content, that's at the $5 level for the bonus audio and the $10 level for the written pieces. Yeah. All right, so with that uh, kind of ad, yes. <laughs> ton, the kind of teasing uh, going on, um, tell us about The Vampire's Ghost. Sure. Because all I know about it is that it's from 1945 and was directed by L Leslie Salander. Mm-hmm. So, Which sounds kind of like a Harry Potter name, honestly. Uh, yeah, because it sounds like Newt Scamander. <laughs> yeah, that's probably it. So The Vampire's Ghost is a Republic Pictures film, and we haven't seen a lot from Republic Pictures on Scream Scene. They were mostly a Western kind of studio. That was the genre they were most strongly identified with. And Republic was sort of the top dog of the Poverty Row studios. It worked in the same genres as Poverty Row, B-movies, Westerns, serials, but gave them much higher budgets than most Poverty Row Studios, uh, sometimes budgets almost like on par or competitive with the major studios. So it was kind of a... a Stepping stone between Poverty Row and uh, regular Row? The majors, yeah. 
Um, and one of the reasons why we haven't seen a lot from Republic is because Republic Pictures boss Herbert J. Yates preferred to steer clear of any content that might create conflict with the Breen office, uh, because Yates just felt like there was no reason to get into fights with the Breen office. Like, just just make movies that follow the rules, guys. Um, and so that's why we've seen very little Republic Horror Pictures. We've seen um, The Crime of Dr. Crespi mm -hmm. from 1935, and then The Lady and the Monster from 1944. And someone must have thought the genre was worth trying again after The Lady and the Monster, because here we are with The Vampire's Ghost. So this film was produced by Rudolph Abel and directed by Leslie Salander, both of whom were Republic Pictures veterans, just guys who churned out product for the studio. Salander is known as one of the most prolific directors of westerns in history, with 107 westerns alone under his belt between 1936 and 1967. So instead of spurs clinking when he walks, it's all these western movies to his belt. Just clinking yeah, along. Right, yeah, the film canisters. Uh, he would direct only one other horror picture in his career, 1946's Catman of Paris. <laughs> that's a title. Whoo, whoo, that's ripping off some things. few different things, yeah. Yep. The writer of this film, however, was legendary science fiction author Leigh Brackett. She was born in 1915 in Los Angeles. And her first science fiction short story appeared in the February 1940 issue of Astounding Science Fiction. This was in the sort of golden age of science fiction when there were dozens of sci-fi pulp magazines on the newsstands that uh, all these up-and-coming writers could uh, submit stories to. Brackett stories considered social themes, like the effects of Earth colonizers on alien cultures... Oh, interesting. And she was a member of the Los Angeles Science Fantasy Society, which is the oldest continuously operating sci-fi club in the world. Oh, wow. She also contributed to STFET, the first all-women sci-fi fanzine. Her first novel, 1944's No Good from a Corpse, was a hard-boiled mystery novel. <laughs> no Good from a Corpse? Yeah. Okay. Sure. I it's mean... <laughs> a, it's a hard-boiled detective novel. And her first science fiction novel, Shadow Over Mars, incorporated hard-boiled noir elements into her sci-fi. Okay. Her literary agent, Hugh King, went to work for Republic as a story editor, and when he heard that the studio was looking to cash in on the Universal Monsters, he got Brackett the job writing The Vampire's Ghost. Brackett was not usually a horror writer, but later said that to the producers in Hollywood, it was all bug-eyed monsters, and they saw no difference. I mean, that's fair. That's We've seen that conflation. Mm -hmm. Because the science fiction genre hasn't really developed into its own thing yet. Yeah, I mean, by the 40s, it was certainly starting to in print, if not necessarily in film, although you did have things like the Flash Gordon serials and stuff like that. But, I mean, it's always key to remember that, you know, I think today we associate Frankenstein as horror because of the movies, but, like, the novel is also considered to be science fiction, and that mad scientist character is definitely the linking element between the two genres for a very long time. Well, even horror started out in fantasy mm -hmm. films, and, like, that genre. 
Brackett wrote the story treatment for The Vampire's Ghost, and then she collaborated for three weeks on the script with John K. Butler, a prolific writer of westerns for Republic who wrote hard-boiled pulp fiction as a side gig. The combination of her work here and her first novel would see her hired by Howard Hawks to write the classic film noir The Big Sleep in 1946, oh, shit. based on the novel by Raymond Chandler and starring Humphrey Bogart as Detective Philip Marlowe. Also in 1946, Brackett married fellow sci-fi writer and DC Comics writer Edmund Hamilton. Their best man was Ray Bradbury, with whom Brackett co-wrote Lorelei of the Red Mists. Brackett was known as the Queen of Space Opera, and many of her classic sci-fi stories were set in a version of the solar system where Earth competes for dominance with Venus and Mars. Her later stories lament the destruction of old civilizations to the effects of colonization and focus on mood over story. She continued to write screenplays, including the 1959 John Wayne western Rio Bravo for director Howard Hawks. Okay. And the follow-ups, El Dorado from 1966 and Rio Lobo in 1970. I have never heard of Rio Lobo. It's always been overshadowed by Rio Bravo. Rio Lobo was, like, Howard Hawks' last film, and one of, like, John Wayne's last films, too. It was kind of the, like, swan song of that kind of Western, considering that uh, you had the Spaghetti Western coming in to replace it uh, shortly before that. She returned to film noir in 1973, with her script for The Long Goodbye, directed by Robert Altman and starring Elliot Gould, based on another Raymond Chandler, Philip Marlowe novel. In 1978, Brackett was hired by George Lucas to write the sequel to Star Wars, based on his story outline. In her first draft, the major beats of what would become The Empire Strikes Back can be seen. The Battle of Hoth, the asteroid field chase, Luke training under a wise Jedi Master called Minch, in this version. <laughs> Cloud City, here run by Lando Kadar, uh, who betrays the characters before Luke's climactic duel with Darth Vader. However, in Brackett's version, the love triangle between Luke, Leia, and Han was far more prominent. Luke's sister was a distinct character in hiding called Neleth. Anakin Skywalker was still distinct from Darth Vader. He appears as a ghost on Dagobah. And Han survived to the end of the film, going off on a quest at the end to find his rich, estranged uncle. (laughs) Some changes before it made it to screen. Brackett passed away on March 18th, 1978 from cancer, and so the screenplay was revised and completed by Raiders of the Lost Ark writer Lawrence Kasdan. Mm -hmm. The unlikely lead actor of The Vampire's Ghost is John Abbott a 40-year-old actor from London who began a stage career as a Shakespearean actor in 1934. Do you think there's any relation between the guy in the Abbott and Costello movies? No. Okay. Not, not even close. Abbott worked at the British Embassy in Stockholm uh, at the beginning of World War II, and when the war necessitated his leaving, he could only get passage to the U.S., So, he started working in Hollywood in 1941 and stayed there the rest of his life. He mostly appeared in small character parts. Uh, For instance, we saw him in the role of Peter Altheus, the Undertaker, in Cry of the Werewolf. Genre fans may know him best as Aelborn, the most prominent of the pacifist Organians in the classic Star Trek episode, Errand of Mercy. 
The rest of the cast consists of stalwart Republic contract players like Peggy Stewart, Grant Withers, Adele Mara, and Roy Barcroft, who all appeared in hundreds of westerns for Republic in this period. Filming for The Vampire's Ghost took ten days. (laughs) Sorry, we just came off, like, a movie that took a month to film, not to mention was, like, years in production because of the painting of the portraits. Uh, Sorry, (laughs) it's just very funny. And according to Brackett, this was two days over schedule. So it was supposed to be an eight-day shoot, and it went two days over schedule to ten, Sarah. Oh my god. The film's initial cinematographer, future Twilight Zone director of photography, Robert Patak, was fired after two days for taking too long, and was replaced with future Ironside director of photography and Republic veteran Bud Thackeray. The film was released on (laughs) May 21st, 1945, on a double feature with The Phantom Speaks. Another horror movie produced simultaneously with this one, starring Richard Arlen from The Lady and the Monster and Stanley Ridges from Black Friday and stealing plot points from both about an executed killer who possesses a psychic researcher in order to get revenge on his old enemies, which is also like the plot to Supernatural. Yeah, a little like that. Unfortunately, I couldn't find a copy of The Phantom Speaks anywhere. And I also could not find any record of it ever having a home video release. Oh. So unless someone manages to help us dig up a copy of The Phantom Speaks, we won't really be able to cover it for Scream Scene. Uh, However, the double feature was successful enough for Republic to produce another horror double feature, Valley of the Zombies and The Catman of Paris, the next year. Um, Well, how are we watching this picture? So, The Vampire's Ghost is uh, available restored on Blu-ray from Olive Films. Olive Films! Just restoring old public domain movies for conceivably, like... Us. Yeah. Little financial (laughs) benefit, but we appreciate it here at Scream Scene. Um, And it's also on the Scream Scene YouTube playlist. Oh, sweet. So, folks, if you do want to watch along, you can find that playlist on our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss the vampire's ghost and how that is... I was about to say how how that is scientifically possible, but it's vampires. Like, it's not going to be... Well, also ghosts, but still. Okay. Let's see how they explain the Yeah, title. let's see it. Uh, from 1945, directed by Leslie Salander... See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back, everyone, to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Vampire's Ghost from 1945, directed by Leslie Salander. Sarah, what did you think of this? Well, I'm greatly disappointed that there was no ghost. Yeah, the title is nonsense. There is a vampire. Mm-hmm. It, it was honestly kind of interesting, and it's under an hour. It's like 59 minutes. So, like, it, it didn't feel like a waste of my time. Sure. Yeah, it's no harm to watch. 
when it started, I was concerned we were going to have another black moon situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, luckily, it wasn't that. Yeah. Um, this movie's kind of interesting, and I I don't think it's, you know, going to win any awards anytime soon, but uh, it was fine. Yeah. How about you tell us what it's about? So we get off to a bad start <laughs> with uh, some African natives drumming and a narrator informing us that the setting of our story is Bakunda in Darkest Africa. And To be fair, they don't say Darkest Africa, but they show us a map and this village is like right smack in the middle of it, so the implication. And they do use the phrase like that dark continent or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. They're also not going for any kind of accuracy. No. Bakunda is a small village that when we see the exteriors of it, appears to be like a backlot Mexican set that has been redressed to be like an African village. It is, according to the map we see at the start of the movie, like smack dab in the middle of Africa, which in 1945 would have been the Belgian Congo. But everybody has the most 1940s American names, like Julie and Roy. Um, And everybody speaks English in American accents. And also people keep talking about the docks and the waterfront, even though the map at the start shows it like it's a landlocked village. The map does show a river. Mm. So I I just try to like go with that. And also, there's a lot of talk of voodoo, which, like, A, that's not the word we should be using if we're over here in Africa, and B, that's, like from a different part of Africa than this movie is theoretically taking place in. Yes. Um, Because that's Western Africa. Um, Kind of the, like, hip joint part of Africa. Yeah. Um, But this movie really isn't interested in any kind of African accuracy at all. It is just interested in, like, the concept of Africa. It's a very generic kind of throw-all-the-stereotypes-together version of Africa. And our narrator is an immortal being who is trapped to go down the the, the road of time, which is like a circle. <laughs> and because um, it's infinite for him because he never dies and he must feed upon the blood of the living and all of that, you know, vampire stuff. He's a vampire. People in the village of Bakunda and the surrounding, like, rubber plantation... Uh, have been dying, and everybody's like, yeah, we keep finding them with two pinpricks in their neck, partially drained of blood. We have no idea what could be happening. And it's like, at this point, for your characters to be saying things like that, you either have to be setting your movie in the past, or we're in some alternate universe where, like, vampire movies don't exist. Well, here's the thing. The natives are, like, convinced that it's a vampire, and... The white people are like, but that's just a myth. It can't be that. It's really weird. It's the same kind of like, oh, the natives are superstitious thing that you get in traditional vampire movies when we're in, like, Eastern Europe. They've just transplanted it to Africa. And there are versions of things like vampires in African cultures, the same way that there are versions of things like vampires in any culture all over the world. But it's still a little bit weird to have people who are dressed like, you know, 1940s 
Hollywood backlot African natives, right? Like they are, you can picture it in your head, folks, and that's what they look like. And they're talking about vampires and how we have to, you know, use a silver spear and things like this. <laughs> we have a set of characters in the village of Bakunda. Um, there is Roy Hendrick, who is the guy who runs the plantation, I guess. It's it's a little weird because he's, like, super young. Uh, but he's played by Charles Gordon, who was only ever in, like, five movies in his whole life. Uh, he is our romantic lead. His girlfriend is Julie Vance, played by Peggy Stewart. Then there's her dad, Thomas Vance. And there's also a Catholic priest who's been brought into the village because, you know, vampires are mucking about. <laughs> well, he's like a missionary. Yeah, yeah. He's he's like an African missionary, but he's been, he's been like, summoned to this village from wherever he was before because vampires. vampires. Uh, and that's Father Gilchrist, played by Grant Withers. Wait, Gilchrist? Yeah. So... <laughs> Little on the nose there, guys. Speaking of on the nose naming... As, uh, you know, these characters are sitting in a living room in a house talking about these uh, mysterious murders that have gotten the natives all up in a tizzy and, you know, beating those those drums and, oh, things are going to go bad if we can't do something to, to solve these murders. I, I love that their motivation to solve the murders is so that the, quote, natives will calm down, yes. unquote, rather than... You know, because someone's killing people. Yeah, I mean, the, the implication is that if we don't get the natives to calm down about these murders, we'll have, like, a revolt on our hands. That's the unspoken implication here. Yeah. Um. So... So we're getting closer to Black Moon territory. Right. So Roy mentions to Father Gilchrist that he plans on asking a man named Webb Fallon about the murders, because Fallon runs like a dive bar at the docks, and he knows more about the, like, criminal underworld of Bakunda than even the natives of Bakunda, even though he's only been here a month or something like that. Ugh. And so, you know, speaking of on-the-nose names, Father Gilchrist is like, Fallon, you mean like from the Gaelic word, meaning like a dark stranger of the night or something. <laughs> so Fallon is... I also just kept thinking about like that description applied to Jimmy Fallon. Sure. Ugh. So Fallon is played by John Abbott, and he runs this bar, and he is also clearly our narrator from the beginning, and uh, he is our vampire. Um, he kind of looks like... Steve Buscemi crossed with Paul Henreid? Yeah, yeah, I could see that. He's got sort of the bug eyes and the no chin, but then he's also like a very distinguished upper crust British kind of like posh flavor to him. Yes. Now, Fallon has a dancer in his club named Lisa, and his club is mostly frequented by like scummy, like sailor types who like gamble at this bar with Fallon and then, like, lose a lot of money all the time. And, like, is it legal to, like, for, like, the dude who owns the casino to be playing at the casino with the other players? That seems... Look, he's just lifted the veil. When you gamble at a place, you're gambling with the person who owns it. Oh, they sure. They might just not be at the table, but 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going to lose to them. <laughs> sure. You know? He's just... Being honest. Yeah. <laughs> um, He's an honest vampire. <laughs> right. So Roy goes to Fallon and is like, hey, what do you know about these, you know, Moidas? And Fallon, you know, plays it totally innocent. But there are some weird things about him. Uh, he doesn't have any mirrors uh, in his room. And he claims this is because he's got, like, very sensitive eyesight. And so when, like, it's daytime, like, the reflections are just too much for him. And whenever he goes outside in the daytime, he does wear, like, some sunglasses. Yeah. And he also has, like, a box that he keeps on, like, his nightstand that apparently, like, has an engraving dating back to the days of, like, Queen Elizabeth and the Spanish Armada, where it was given to his ancestor for services rendered. But Fallon's like, you know, there's a village not far from here that's, like, super witchcrafty. Let's go over there and see what they know. And so the, one of the running things in this movie is that all of the nearby villages to Bakunda communicate through these drums. So the natives are drumming, and, you know, they're drumming because they're upset about the vampire murders. Um, but, like, the drums are, like, a kind of, like, Morse code or semaphore kind of idea where they, like communicate specific things and they kind of serve as like a news ticker about like <laughs> events in other villages. Yeah. And I have to admit, uh, some ignorance on my part. I have no idea if this is based on a real thing or if this is just something that this movie pulled out of its ass because everything about Africa in this movie is so kind of just generically lazily made up that I'm really, I really don't know. I also have no idea if it's a real thing or not. Um, I mean, obviously, drums have always been used in some form of another for communication. Mm -hmm. um, but to me, this feels like it, the idea of like Native American smoke signals yeah. applied to African drumming. Yes, that's totally what it feels like. So Roy and Fallon go on a, saf a safari. Is that what they kept calling it? So Fallon and Roy go on this safari into the jungle to reach this witchcrafty village. And these more, like, witch doctory, voodoo-y, like, savage-type natives have set up, like, a bunch of traps in the jungle to, you know, kill the vampire. And so a gunshot rings out, and it should have killed Fallon, or at least shot him, but instead it got this native that they brought with them on the safari named Taba behind him. And uh, Taba speaks, as all the other natives in this movie do, in this kind of like... Broken English. Uh, it's like this very ridiculous flavor of broken English, though, because it's that kind of stereotyped broken grammar of English, where it's like, me go here, do thing. But the diction is perfect. It's not like an accent. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, him vampire, go village now. Like, it's that. Um, again, kind of more Native American styling. Yeah. But I guess all these Republic dudes made westerns most of the time. <laughs> um, but there's another guy on the safari named Simon Peter. His name suggests that his character was supposed to be like, a native who is converted to Christianity. Because yeah. it's one of those, like, I picked the Christianist name I possibly could kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, like, times two. Right. But, and because nobody in this movie does any kind of accent, he just kind of has, like, a straight, normal American accent. He's like a house servant. Mm -hmm. And after Tab has been shot, 
him and Simon Peter kind of doing a little bit of investigation because it makes no sense that Taba should have been hit and not Fallon. And so as everybody's sleeping for camp that night in the jungle, Simon Peter goes over into Fallon's tent and does some investigation and finds out that there is, in fact, a bullet hole in Fallon's clothes that suggests that a bullet went through him and into Taba, but there's no wound on Fallon. So Simon Peter and Taba are like, well, cool, he's a vampire. They just immediately are like, oh... Vampire. He's the vampire. Okay, when well, we need a spear covered with silver. Right. So they do that. They boil up some silver in the middle of the jungle at this <laughs> camp. Like, it's just that easy to it's do. It's not important to figure out, like, how they got that. Yeah, That's and then they cover... Movies like, we're not spending time on this. They cover a spear tip with it, and uh, Simon Peter throws the spear at Fallon the next day and gets him. And Roy, who's with Fallon, like, kind of just sees Fallon get... Speared. Speared. And is like, oh, fuck. fuck. <laughs> and Fallon's like, Roy, take me into the tent. And so he does. And Roy takes the spear out. And Fallon's fine. There's no blood. And Fallon's like, yes, Roy, I'm the vampire. <laughs> and basically puts the old Bela Lugosi whammy on Roy. And turns him into his... Renfield. His Renfield. And is like... Take me and the box of earth from Queen Elizabeth that has the earth from my grave inside it to the top of the mountain, and I'll rest on top of it, and when the moonlight hits me, I'll be all healed up. And so Roy does that. Fallon also hypnotizes Roy to not be able to speak about the fact that Fallon's a vampire. Right. And Roy makes his way eventually back to Bakunda with the survivors of the expedition. Uh, to find that, like, Fallon beat him to the village and is totally fine. And, you know, Roy's trying to tell people, like, hey, he's the vampire, but he just can't because of the way he's been hypnotized. And he just kind of becomes delirious and crazy, like Renfield. And people just assume he has the fever. And they put him into bed, try to get him to get well again. So Fallon's like, well, I'll stay here with Julie and take care of you, Roy. And he uses this as an opportunity to kind of keep Roy sedate and hypnotized, and also put some of the old vampire moves on Julie. Uh, Roy mail orders the book of vampire exposition <laughs> from Johannesburg, and people it's called, like vampire legends or something yes. like that. Yeah, this time around. But I mean, it's the same damn book that everyone's had in every single fucking <laughs> vampire movie in order to learn about vampires. Um, you know, he's going to read it to try and figure out about. Fallon, and Fallon's like... Let me let save you some time. Turn yeah. to page 234. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's just like, you you can't kill me unless you burn me uh, and scatter the ashes, which, you know, that's true. Uh, and also, I'm a fuck-up Julie. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to turn her into my vampire bride, and there's nothing you can do about it. Because you're all, you you are both the Jonathan Harker and the Renfield, so you, there's just double nothing you can do about it. Now, meanwhile, Fallon's uh, dancer Lisa has been getting jealous of all the time that Fallon's been spending on Julie, and so she and a ship captain named Bennett, who got gambled away a bunch of his money to Fallon, team up to try and swindle Fallon out of some money by using like a rigged deck of cards to beat Fallon at cards. And so Fallon goes into the night after them and kills them. This starts up the voodoo drums again and everything, because everyone had thought, like, the murders had ended. 
and, you know, things are just getting real bad. And so uh, Thomas, that is Julie's father, is like, comes to Julie and he's like, hey, we got to get Fallon out of here. The natives blame him. They say he's the vampire. Yeah, they're nailing voodoo dolls to his door. Uh, so we got to just get him to leave town, you know, just, you know, to get this thing to calm down, just till it all blows over for his own protection. Not to solve the murders or anything. And Julie's like, well, that won't solve your problem. And he's like, yeah, but it'll get everyone to calm the fuck down. Uh, and Julie's just, like, not in favor of getting rid of Fallon because she's gotten, you know, really attached to him lately through some strange vampiric uh, charm. Meanwhile, Roy kind of keeps alternating between, like, trying to defeat Fallon. Like, he, he gets his box of Earth and, like, tries to chuck it out the window at one point. But he keeps getting, like, stopped by Fallon, who still has this strong hypnotic control over him. And Fallon explains, like, yeah, even if you got rid of my box of Earth, I just need to get more before the next full moon, uh, which is kind of interesting. He also doesn't need to, like, explicitly sleep in the earth. It's just in this tiny little, like, jewelry box <laughs> which thing. Which you can just put under his pillow. Right. Which is is a neat addition yeah, or it, a change to it, vampire lore. It kind of gives the vampire, like, a phylactery yeah. is kind of the feel of it. So Father Gilchrist shows up and is like, hey, Roy, you've... You've been vampire whammied. You've been you've been turned into a uh, into a thrall. Uh, let's get you over to the church and get you right with God, and uh, then we can go defeat this vampire. And Roy's like, okay, like explicitly, like a Catholic church. Yes, like we see them praying with a rosary. Yeah, and he's explicitly a Catholic priest. Like he's in the black, uh, uh, you know, smock. Smock. Yeah. And Father Gilchrist is kind of great because everybody in the village has the ability to, like, read the drums Morse code. And so, you know, like, Thomas Vance's response to the drums Morse code is like, oh, shit, they think Fallon's the vampire. Better get Fallon out of town so that they don't kill him. And Father Gilchrist's reaction is like, oh, shit, the natives think Fallon's a vampire. That explains everything. Better go get Roy to a church. (laughs) Yeah, in the beginning... Father Gilchrist uh, doesn't say, like, he believes in vampires, but as a priest and someone who believes in God, I believe in evil. Which is like, you believe in vampires, dude. Yeah, like, yeah. you're in oh, a vampire sure. movie, you, you're gonna believe in vampires. So, while they're at the church, Fallon's realized, like, it's time to skip town. Like, Thomas comes to warn him and is like, hey, you should skip town. And rather than being like, no, never, Fallon's like, yeah, man, I can see when the voodoo dolls are on the wall. Uh, and, uh, he uses his hypno powers to uh, call Julie to him. And so she, in a trance, walks over to him. And he's like, yeah, we're getting out of here. Now, the problem is there's only one ship at the docks. And it's the ship whose captain was the dude that... Fallon killed earlier in the movie, so that ship ain't going nowhere. So in order to get out of the country, Fallon and Julie are taking off into the jungle. Meanwhile, Father Gilchrist and Roy make it back to the house, and Roy's all good with God now. You know, uh, Father Gilchrist has cast protection from evil and good on him, <laughs> and uh, he has everything's his free will back. Right, he's ready to take on the vampire. And Simon Peter's like. Great, because I still have this silver spear from earlier, so let's do it. So Simon Peter and Father Gilchrist and Roy make up, like, a party to go find Fallon and kill him. Also, Julie's dad is there. Yeah, well, Thomas is just like, 
wait, what are we doing? Where's Julie? I don't understand. <laughs> and so they go to look for Julie and find Fallon, and they're gone. It's like, well, fuck. Like, how are we gonna? How are we gonna figure out where they where they're going and what they're doing? To the drums. Right. So they realize that the drums are basically. African telegrams, and that they can communicate in, like, a relay with all the nearby villages, so if anybody spots Fallon and Julie, they can, like, relay it back. Fallon and Julie make their way to an abandoned village that used to be home to a bunch of people who worshipped the Death God in a cult, and there's a temple of the Death God here, and, like, they're all dead because the cult was wiped out, but, like, we're gonna stay the night, and I'll regain my vampire strength when the moon rises, And that's when he's also going to turn Julie full vampire. And so we've got this, like, little D&D adventure here at the end with, like, our cleric, fighter, barbarian, uh, plus old man uh, party going through the jungle to reach the temple of the death god where they're going to fight a vampire. Um, And they use the drums to hone in on Fallon and interrupt him turning Julie into a vampire. Uh, They throw the spear at him and get him. And then he's like, ah, the spear, Roy, pull it out. And Roy's free of his influence now, so he just gets Julie, grabs her out of there. And Fallon's like, ah, somebody, it burns. (laughs) And then Simon Peter takes a torch and just lights the whole temple on fire. And the big idol of the god of death falls on Fallon and everything goes up in flames. Uh, The end. Yeah, it's like good teamwork. Uh, Also, um, with all the drums kind of going back and forth and, you know, kind of a, a... following the telegram wires, as it were. I uh, can't help but think, the beacons are lit. <laughs> Gondor calls for aid. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very much that kind of style of storytelling. Yeah, so I think the reason why I found it interesting is when the film opens, even just with the credits, you're on this uh, African native banging on a log drum, mm-hmm. and you're just like, oh, this is set in the jungle. And it's from 1945. Okay, let's brace ourselves for what this is going to be. Mm -hmm. But at no point did um, it feel like a derogatory type of racism. Obviously, there's still racism going on in this movie, just even in the way that people are being portrayed. But there's no, like, step-and-fetch-it type of character. Simon Peter is very competent. Like, all of the African natives know what is going on long before the white people. The natives and the villagers are ultimately on the good side, which is a welcome change, right? They're not... None of them are the vampires, like, minions, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, They're the ones who have to, like, get the white people to listen and come along and kill the vampire, right? So it's, it's not malicious, and that was a nice change of pace. Yeah. Um, Also, the fact that um, the villagers and the natives know what is going on, presumably through their understanding of voodoo, mm -hmm. and the Catholic priest understands what's going on through his beliefs in the Bible, Mm -hmm. that kind of, like, legitimizes both of them in a way. It's not, like, Because they're both right, because vampires are real, because here's this vampire. Yeah. Yeah, at no point are they like, ugh, voodoo. It's just like, yeah, that's what they believe. Yeah, it's it's odd because the movie has enough respect for the African characters to, you know, portray them as being in the right and being competent and, like, ultimately being on the side of good. 
but not enough respect to do any kind of research whatsoever. Like, nobody did a trip to the library on this one. No. Um, it, it's, it's, what racism is here is, I think, the two types of racism you can see in this movie is the racism of, like, ignorance, mm-hmm. where it's just like, fuck, I don't know, maybe they're like uh, smoke signals. And then also the racism of just, like, laziness, yeah. where it's like, ah, we're not going to bother with figuring out you know, what these people would be like or how they would talk. We're just going to kind of make them talk like Tonto from The Lone Ranger and call it a day, right? Yeah. I will say this for the African setting, which is, like, it's really weird to see, like, a completely traditional Eastern European, like, Dracula-ass style vampire in an African, like, jungle movie setting. And that weirdness does help the movie kind of stand out a bit. You know, I'll remember this one down the line as being the vampire movie set in Africa. Yeah. Yeah, they changed the lore around vampires a bit. Not, like, completely away from what the common understanding of a vampire is, but they've just, like, made it slightly different to kind of work with what what story they're telling. Yeah, there's some interesting variations here. So, like, um, the fact that in order to kill the vampire, you need to take a silver weapon to mm-hmm. um that's only been in reference to werewolves yeah in, until this point in movies yeah yeah um the way to defeat or to like fully kill the vampires to burn them and then scatter their ashes that's in line with things we've understood before um we also have the no reflection in mirrors showing up here there's this really neat scene where there's a mirror Simon Peter's serving Fallon and sees that he has no reflection. Um, and Fallon looks over at the mirror and then it shatters. Like, that was a cool moment. But the things that they've kind of changed here is Fallon doesn't just burn up with being exposed to the sun. Um, he just has very sensitive eyes. Now, when he does go out during the daylight, he has, as Ben says, sunglasses. He's wearing a big hat. And when we do see him outside, it's in the African jungle. So you have presumably a lot of shade. But there's also scenes where, like, he's indoors and it's daytime and he'll tell, he'll, like, come in, like, with his hand over his eyes and tell people to, like, close the blinds. You know, so he's, his level of sunlight sensitivity is sort of like he's Jason Isaacs in Star Trek Discovery. That's what I was thinking, too. Yeah, he's He's from the mirror mirror universe. universe. Oh, spoilers. Uh, sorry, guys. Um, there also seems to be this kind of special ritual with the moon, in order to make Julie a vampire. Yes. It's no longer just, like, I drink your blood, you drink mine. Mm-hmm. Um, like, he takes soil, like his grave soil, and puts it on her head in kind of like a, almost like Ash Wednesday yes. kind of ritual, only it's like a circle, um, which is interesting. I kind of wish we would have been able to see more of what they were going for there. Yeah, and uh, as we mentioned earlier, the soil has become this, like, phylactery box that he has to carry around with him, and he can regenerate from wounds or, like, near-death things with, like, the light of the moon. Mm -hmm. Like, the moon is really tied in here in a way that, again, we've normally seen associated with werewolves. Yeah, which makes me think that this movie is trying to capture a few different trends. Obviously vampires, but werewolves as well as voodoo zombies. Maybe Mm -hmm. zombie is a step too far, but definitely the imagery of the setting that we saw in I Walked With a Zombie. Yeah. The people who made this movie definitely have seen Luton's films, because um, when 
Fallon is stalking the ship captain and his dancer, Lisa. Um, it's a very Luton-inspired type of chase scene, inspired both from Cat People and also Seventh Victim. Yes, with the like emphasis on showing people's feet and like the sound of footsteps and stuff like that. Yeah. So I think it's not so much um, Republic trying to do horror movies. I think it's almost like they're trying to do a Luton movie. Yeah, a little bit. I also think that, you know, one thing I read a lot about this time period is that Universal was very litigious uh, against other studios trying to hone in on their specific brand of horror. And so one thing that's always important to remember, especially at this time, is that because of how close we still are, to the release of a movie like Wolfman in Mm -hmm. 1941. It's important to remember that, like, so much of what we consider to just be, like, the, like, set-in-stone vampire or werewolf rules are from universal movies. And we're sort of at a point in our culture now where those are just the rules. I could see that, like, at at a time uh, closer to the release of those movies, some fear about okay, what parts of vampire lore are, like, public domain because it's traditional folklore, and what can Universal sue us for because it's specifically from their films? Yeah. And so we get these variants on vampire lore that, like, change things up a little bit, and in some ways it's nice because, you know, it makes things different, right? It's like, oh, this is unique. But also I bet that some of the motivation comes from, okay, how do we distinguish this from Dracula? which Universal has the rights to, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Because in a lot of ways, in terms of the basic outline of the plot, you know, this is still the Dracula formula. You know, this time it's African Dracula. But we still have this story of, you know, the 400, 500-year-old vampire who comes into this community, is threatening the young girl, and so, like, her old man dad and like the guy who believes in vampires and has the power to stop them and her boyfriend have to like team up to defeat the vampire there's no cowboy in this one though no um (laughs) but you know the twist this time around is that the narrative economy of the 1931 dracula adaptation where we gave Renfield, the Jonathan Harker part for the first half of the movie, has been kind of taken to its logical conclusion, and Renfield and Jonathan Harker are the same dude in this version. Yeah. What was interesting is this movie is having free will and the importance of free will as a theme. Which comes back to that Catholic flavor, right? Like, free will is a very important Catholic theological belief, right? Yeah, it's also like, a key part of, like, American identity. Mm-hmm. But it also, with the way that the film is handling it, where um, the vampires come up and happens because his thrall regains his free will, mm-hmm. had similar flavors to The Return of the Vampire from 1943. Right, yeah. Yeah. It felt, watching this movie, like there was a little bit more explicit on-screen sex and violence... Yeah. Than we've gotten lately. Yeah. Uh, since, like, the code came in. It's not really, like, a lot. Like, if I showed a normal person this movie, they wouldn't notice it. But when you're watching one of these week after week every week, you do notice it. Like, people get shot and, you know, maybe grazed and they have blood. You know, women are 
a little bit sexier, a little bit um, re- more revealing in their clothes or in their movement. Um, so I will say, and we'll just put this out there, that the women, the two women that we see that are kind of depicted as being a bit more sexualized um, is the first victim that we see. It's a woman who's asleep and she's clearly naked under her blanket. Which and- is super abnormal for like, this time period of Hollywood. Like, women in 1940s Hollywood movies go to bed essentially fully clothed. Yeah. And then Lisa, as she's dancing, um, that skirt comes up a little high at times. Yeah. And in the case of the female victim, she's black. Mm-hmm. And Lisa, uh, the actress... Lisa is of indis- like indeterminate ethnicity. The actress is like a white blonde chick. But yeah, they've put so, her... but she's uh, colored up. Yes. They've put her in a dark wig and darkened her skin tone. And the dance that she does... Is vaguely, vaguely Indian. E- yeah, she's ethnic yeah. of some kind. I don't know if it's really supposed to be anything. Yeah. But you are right in pointing out that, like... There's a long history of sexualizing women of color. Right. And that's reflected here. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was definitely just noticeable... To see a little bit more sex and violence in a movie. Yeah. Especially coming after, like, Dorian Gray last week, which, you know, had its shocking moments and was certainly a powerful film, but also, like, as an MGM movie, was playing to a respectable crowd that I feel like is not the crowd that this movie was playing to. (laughs) You don't think Republic is going after the same audience? (laughs) As an MGM? No. (laughs) Most of the cast here I thought was fine. Uh, John Abbott as Fallon is probably the best of the cast, but even he is just kind of a cheap Legosi knockoff, albeit with a posh accent, like he's not trying to do the Legosi accent. Um, unfortunately, as much as I did like the character and liked the way he was written and performed, Abbott doesn't quite have the charisma to really pull it off. Yeah. Um, he gives it his best shot to be this charismatic, magnetic figure, but there's just something about... His, like, very, you know, BBC English accent that I, I think just makes it hard for him <laughs> to have that kind of animal magnetism. Unfortunately, I do have to say that the black actors in the cast do give kind of the worst performances, but it's hard to say if that's because, you know, they weren't very good actors that were found for this movie, or if it was just how much they're hampered by the, like, weird frickin' Tonto dialect that they're given to speak. Yeah, overall, it was an interesting film, um, a uh, entertaining hour, pleasantly surprised that it wasn't malicious in any sort of way. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think it's clear that the script was written by intelligent people. You know, it does a good job of handling the vampiric themes, as we've discussed. The use of a explicitly Catholic priest is a nice bit of flavor that has been uncommon to these movies up till now, which despite the fact that religion is, like, a central part of vampire lore, have always been, like, a little weirdly agnostic about it. Like, we pull out crosses and we have, you know, Christian imagery, but here it's, like, explicitly a priest of an explicit denomination. Yeah. It kind of reminded me, just like the the Catholic priest in the African village fighting the supernatural threat thing, kind of reminded me a bit of the um, Exorcist prequel, a little bit. Oh, yeah. Yeah, with, uh... Stellan Skarsgård. Yeah. But, you know, this movie could not be more 1940s with the, like, Africa stuff and, like, the character names of, like, Roy and Julie 
but ultimately like it's competent like even on a production level um you know it's it's nothing special there's really not anything in terms of like lighting or camera moves that i can really point to and be like oh this was cool or good but it was competent you know the same kind of technical competency that you'd expect from like a television production from the 60s. Sure. That kind of thing, where it's like, everybody making this movie knows what they're doing, it's just nobody's putting any extra time or energy into, like, doing something cool. Yeah. Right? But it's not quite on that, like, monogram PRC level of, like, yeah, just set the camera up and set it rolling and have people do things in front of it, and then we'll call cut, you know? Yeah. Well, where were you thinking of ranking this? Well, Sarah, um, my range is a little bit low. Okay. Um, I started by looking for Black Moon. Um, sure. Not because I really think this is quality-wise comparable, but it was just like the the first movie that came to mind to like view this against. Sure. Black Moon's down at number 104. <laughs> and I was like, well, this is definitely better than that, so let's start looking up. And I got as far as uh, Song at Midnight, which is sitting right now at number 100. Okay. And I started to kind of question things, because Song at Midnight has some cool stuff in it. Mm-hmm. So I made that my floor, because I thought this was certainly better than Return of the Ape Man, which was some real, you know, B-movie schlock. So I started looking up from there, and I got as high as Genuina at number 78, and then Cry of the Werewolf at 77. And I think both those movies were doing more unique things than this one. Uh, for all of its variations on vampire lore and, you know, the unique setting, this is still just Dracula in Africa. So I kind of made that my ceiling. So I'm thinking this movie can go in at either number 79 at the highest or uh, number 101 at the lowest. So that range is actually uh, significantly lower than mine. Yeah, I had a feeling. um, I really liked this movie, but I just, like, from where I was comparing it to things, it was like... I liked this, but it wasn't great, so it just kind of ended up low. Where were you looking? Um, So I was thinking about the themes about free will, Mm. and that was pretty apparent in The Return of the Vampire. Now that movie is at like 17, which I feel is way too high for The Vampire's Ghost. So I just kind of went down the list, and I stopped at Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. At 38. Sure. Because, you know, The Black Room is at 36, House of Frankenstein is at 37, but Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman is so jumbled that it's, you know... Yeah, it's a bunch of puzzle pieces that never really come together. Yeah, so I felt that, like, probably production-wise, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman is above this, but for me... That's my ceiling. Okay. Then below that is Night Monster, which was pretty (laughs) schlocky. But as I kind of made my way down, I found myself falling around the ghoul and dead men walk at 47 and 48, respectively. Comparing The Vampire's Ghost to Dead Men Walk is interesting because they're both doing like a remix of Dracula. Right. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, And then the ghoul is the ghoul. (laughs) So I was feeling like my range was 38 to 48, but kind of the best spot for this is above the ghoul, below Invisible Ghost, so hitting 47. So looking between our two ranges, uh, if your floor is like number like 48 Mm -hmm. and my ceiling was 79... You know, we've brought up a few times um, that this is a Dracula variation. 
Yeah. So I want to maybe talk about some Dracula variations that are in between there, and we can maybe try and find a spot for it in between our ranges here. Sure. So at number 74, we have that classic Dracula variation, The Mummy, which is just Dracula in Egypt with Boris Karloff. What do we think of The Mummy versus this movie? The one thing I will give to this movie is I think it's probably got a little bit more of a pulse, no pun intended, um, <laughs> since The Mummy is very, like... Methodical and slow. Yes. Like it's lead villain. Yeah. Um, but what, what do we think about comparing those two movies? Um, I think it's interesting to think about. As much as The Mummy, its structure is trying to hit on the beats, the same beats as in Dracula, I feel like The Vampire's Ghost is doing a remix rather than just, rather than a cover. Uh, so I feel like both in the way that it, like, successfully maintains, like, a mood mm -hmm. as well, um, The Vampire's Ghost should go above The Mummy. Okay. Now, if we, if we keep looking up at, you know, where the sort of takes on Dracula are, I guess. At number 61, we have Mark of the Vampire, which was, hey, here's Dracula again, but faster, so we can reveal it was all a ploy at the end. Yeah, I feel like Vampire's Ghost goes above that because it sticks to its guns. You know, it's not all a ploy, it's no really, it's a vampire, no really voodoo and Catholicism are solving this problem for us. What do we think about Vampire's Ghost versus Dracula's Daughter? So Dracula's Daughter introduces the, like, curse to be a vampire. Yeah, vampire I, I, I don't want to be a vampire. Yeah, I want to, like, break off this curse. Whereas the Vampire's Ghost is, like, no, he, he seems to revel in it. He and seems quite happy to keep doing this. What regrets he has about it seem to mostly be that he has to go through it alone. Yeah. That he wants, like, a goyle friend so that, you know, he can have... <laughs> a goyle friend? So that he can have someone to be with through the lonely ages. But, like, other than that, he's cool with it. Like, there are lines where he's a little bit wistful about, like, oh, I must endure this and, you know, this same song and dance until the end of time. But, like... His solution to that is not to cure his vampirism, it's to get himself a companion. Yeah. So I feel like, even as much as Dracula's Daughter, the second half becomes a kind of a, a greatest hits, that approach to the vampire myth is novel in the vampire films we've seen. So I feel like it's a contender to have Dracula's Daughter above this. Below Dracula's Daughter, we see The Mummy's Tomb, which is our highest-ranked Mummies movie, and that's the version where Karis becomes, uh, like, Michael Myers going through the neighborhood and killing people, uh, and ends with him burning up in the house at the end. Okay. It's the one with Turin Bay as the high priest of uh, Karnak. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and then the Hand of the Devil. Mm -hmm. You know what? I feel like, looking in this area then, um, the Vampire's Ghost should go below The Mummy's Tomb, but above The Hand of the Devil. Okay, what's better here than Hand of the Devil? Because The Hand of the Devil was a movie that, like, was really clearly trying to, like, reach for something in terms of, like, <laughs> what it wanted to do in terms of, you know, elevating the horror movie to, you know, a more fine art kind of status. But we ultimately 
kind of came down hard on it for being really tepid. And really repetitive. Yes. Like, oh, how did you get the hand? And we get that told to us seven times. And sure, when we get told that, it's like quick little episodes. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it is just like this guy telling these in people the story, story, right? Whereas the vampire's ghost, like, you're right there with the people. I don't know. I don't know. I feel like the vampire's ghost, because you're in the present, there feels like there's a bit more danger. I, at no point am I, like, scared, but I'm not scared in the hand of the devil either. Mm-hmm. Well, I will say I think this goes above Soul of the Monster, um, because while I kind of like Soul of a Monster uh, a lot, I admire what it's trying to do, and I really think that um, Rose Hobart, you know, gets to be a really cool character with her, like, female Satan character who gets, like, a really awesome entrance. Um, Ultimately, what I like about Vampire's Ghost is Vampire's Ghost says, oh yeah, you know what Catholicism is. Like, the priest doesn't have to explain why, as a Catholic priest, he's fighting vampires and shit. Or, like, why (laughs) getting um, Roy to the church cures him of being a thrall. Whereas, like, in Soul of a Monster, it was, like, this explicit Christian propaganda, but also, like, trying not to say that it was explicit Christian propaganda. Like, it was that, we talked about this, this Jack Chick thing of, like, oh, hearing about the existence of Jesus will make you into a Christian or whatever. Like, have you heard about Jesus? And, like, how weird all of that was, that it seemed to exist in, like, a weird alternate reality. The only thing that's weird about the vampire's ghost is that all the white people are like, oh, a body drained of blood with pinpricks at the neck. Who the fuck knows what that could be? (laughs) I think I'm willing to agree with you that it goes above uh, Hand of the Devil, um, which was trying some things but not succeeding at them. I don't think the vampire's ghost has a lot of ambition, but what ambition it has, I think it mostly succeeds at achieving. Like, I think what this movie set out to do was hey, let's do a vampire movie, but let's put it in, like, a different kind of setting to make it a little bit different, and, you know, let's change up the rules a bit so it's not quite exactly Dracula, and, you know, that's what they set up to do, and they wanted to do it, you know, let's not be idiots while we're doing it. And I think it succeeded on those fronts and was a lot better than, you know, a lot of other kind of cheap efforts to cash in on Dracula. That I'm good with putting this at number 57. So entering the list at the new number 57, The Vampire's Ghost, from 1945, directed by Leslie Salander. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes that we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our website, uh, through our website's ask box. You can email us directly at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. Or you can yell at us on Twitter at underscore Scream Scene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. You can leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. We would really appreciate getting some more reviews. We've got a few five-star ratings, but we've only got one review. And it's, it's from... I didn't know about any of this. That's great. Thank you, whoever uh, put in like the five-star whatever. Oh yeah, we, we only have five-star ratings. Uh, but we don't have that many, and we've got just one review, which is quite old now. Uh, is it positive? Oh, yeah, of course. Oh, good. Awesome. Uh, so we would appreciate, uh, you know, 
any of you going to Apple Podcasts, leaving a rating or a review. Uh, we really enjoy the feedback, and it's also just something that helps more people find the show. Uh, other things that you can do to help support the show is reblogging our Tumblr posts when they go up and liking them and commenting on them, uh, retweeting our tweets of episodes when they go up and liking and replying to them, also liking the SoundCloud posts or commenting on SoundCloud. We would really appreciate any and all of that, basically. Mm-hmm. Also just telling a friend. Mm-hmm. We're entering spooky times. This is... Your time to shine with all of the knowledge you've gained from us and then showing off to your friends and saying, hey, listen to this podcast. That's where I got all this stuff. Exactly. You know, people are going to be asking you, hey, what are some good classic horror movies for me to be watching over October? And you can point them to this podcast and you can point them to our YouTube playlist. Yeah. Uh, So, you know, share the show far and wide. It's October. It's the time to be doing it. Uh, We would really appreciate seeing... Uh, a lot of response uh, this October. And of course, as we mentioned at the top of the show, you can also support us by going to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast, uh, where you can get all of our special upcoming October content for just a dollar, and you can get additional regular bonus content at the $5 and $10 levels. So what are we watching next week, Ben? Well, uh, as I mentioned... I cannot turn up hide nor hair of any evidence of the existence of The Phantom Speaks. Otherwise, we'd probably be watching that because it's the second half of the double feature that this was meant for. So, you know, listeners, if you guys find a copy... Speak up, like The Phantom. Right. (laughs) However, uh, without that film, we will be heading back to RKO and our good buddy, Val Luton. Oh, we haven't seen him for a while. Yeah, he's been trying out some genres other than horror, and it didn't go well for him. So he's heading back to horror with The Body Snatcher, based on the story by Robert Louis Stevenson, and starring Boris Karloff and Bella Lugosi. Oh, shit. Oh, man. That's going to be so good. Yeah, don't miss it, Creatures of the Night. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.